and welcome to episode 6 of Heatwork, our little podcast about wood firing and wood fire culture. Also, Happy New Year! In the Northwest, we're just getting past a week and change of winter weather hell. I hope this finds you warmer and less cabin fever than we've all been recently. Today is another episode about Queer Cat, the all-queer wood fire event that happened at East Creek in May 2023. Featuring guests Shy, Tommy, and Twig talking about the long-term and lasting effects this event has had in so many lives, and why we're so eager for Queer Cat 2024 coming up in late spring. Okay, well, we're here today. It's myself, my name's Mandy, my pronouns are she, her. We've got Alex, they, them, Twig, he, him. We have Shy, she, they, and Tommy, he, him. And we're back with the Queer Cat because this event just reverberated so much that we just want to keep talking about it. So thanks, Shy and Tommy and Twig, all for joining us. Well, thanks everybody for being here. It's cool. We wanted to bring Shy and Tommy on because we've been talking a lot about this event from a leadership standpoint, from Twig and Alex's leadership standpoint. And we've also been talking a lot about what went into it and what the event was like itself. And now we wanted to talk about in the wake of Queer Cat, some of the things that have been happening and the reverberating effects and aftermath of that, because it wasn't just an isolated thing. And so who should we start with? Should we start with Shy or should we start with Tommy? Oh, I stumped everybody. <laughs> Should I take initiative? Shy, we're going to start with you. Great. <laughs> what, can you talk a little bit about what your role was at Queer Cat and why we dragged you onto the show today? Yeah, absolutely. So I believe I first heard about Queer Cat when Twig and Alex, maybe it was the first time you presented it, but maybe it wasn't. It was at the January Onagama firing, I believe. And as soon as I heard you talking about it, I was like, I want to be involved. And so I remember kind of running after you, Twig, and being like, can I, can I photograph it? I'd love to volunteer. And I don't think that I really outwardly talked about this a whole lot, but Gricat was kind of a coming out party for me. I recently have done a lot of work with myself and therapy and life in general, just thinking about what gender and sexuality mean to me. And yeah, Queer Cat was probably the first time I felt fully open and accepted and vulnerable to talk about myself and my sexuality and my journey. So it was a little bit in part of as a photographer, which is my main job in life, I wanted to document this for my community, but I also wanted to document it for myself. And in that, I found so much more than I was hoping for. Yeah, I actually remember that day now that you bring it up, because I think we had made that announcement at the January Onagama firing about our GoFundMe that we had just started. And we're, you know, in the throes of planning everything. And when you offered to contribute by photographing and documenting the event, Alex and I were just so thrilled because we've seen your work. We know that you're so amazing. And we were just like, oh my God, how can this be happening to us right now? And the way that you were able to really capture the atmosphere of the whole thing from start to finish, I think it just speaks for itself. That means the world to me. Yeah, I mean, it was such a privilege and an honor, really. So I thank you for giving me and all of us the space to be able to do this and to feel free to contribute in any way that each individual felt like contributing. That was an amazing part of Queer Cat, was that everyone had their place. Y'all got me crying and I haven't even said anything yet. <laughs> I'm over here just being so just moved already. <laughs> oh. 
Oh, Alex. Yeah, no, I just, I miss you all. <laughs> oh, we miss you too. We need to learn how to fold space. We can just fold the country and then Kentucky will be right there. I know, it's too big. I'm down to make that trip. We can yeah. cat road trip. No, I just... I think in the brief time that we've just been speaking already, we've already just embodied a lot about what Queer Cat was about. And I think that's what just moved me already. So photography is your profession. Correct. And I'm, I'm guessing you've done events before, whether mm -hmm. weddings or other things before. What is it like to bring, I guess, your, your profession into something that you're passionate about? I mean, you're also passionate about photography, but what is it like to say, hey, this is what I do for a living and I'm going to bring it into this event and do what I can to make this event special and memorable? Does that change things? Absolutely. It was absolutely wild. That connection really transformed my life. Pottery has been something that has come into my life recently, bit by bit, and it's been this piecemeal journey. Photography has always been there for me. I have been a photographer since I was 10 years old. I've done every type of photography that I can, and really what makes me happy is just taking pictures. I don't necessarily like to say I'm a portrait photographer or a landscape photographer. I can say I'm a photojournalist. That's where a lot of my background in storytelling comes into play. So bringing my profession of photography and being able to share this story and this journey of pottery and community, that was just something that was so special, special to me. And Usually, as a photojournalist, I'm pretty separate and behind the scenes from what I'm taking photos of or who, who I'm taking photos of, trying to capture and tell their story. But with Queer Cat, it was something much bigger than that because I was taking photos and telling the story of this event, of everyone there, of everyone that we interviewed and photographed. But it was definitely a growing journey and a just hugely transformative process for me to be able to tell my story as well. So yeah, it was definitely just incredible being able to connect the professionalism of photography and bringing it into this event. It felt almost like I had dual personality. I was so into Queer Cat, wanting to be present and there for all the workshops. But in the back of my mind, I was also like, okay, I've got to take photos of all of this. I've got to document it. And I was nervous about those two parts not working well together, not communicating well, but that wasn't a problem. I was able to be in on all the workshops while Sarah Makes Pots was leading a workshop on creating kiln gods. And I got to learn what a kiln god was. I got to learn how to make these figures out of pinching clay. And since I am new to pottery, or I guess newer to pottery, I'm constantly learning. So it was great to be able to do both. I wish I could wrap that up a little bit more seamlessly. I was going to ask if the personal element of it made it difficult at all, but it sounds like it was quite the opposite. It was exactly the opposite, especially with interviewing people who are now my friends. And I get to say that with a big smile on my face because I did make lifelong friends out of this event. And being able to interview these strangers who are now friends and learn about their story and listen to how they talk about themselves and their artistic practice and their journey with gender and identity and sexuality. It gave me the confidence that I needed to be able to talk about myself and my story, which I had struggled with before. I think something that I'd like to hear you share more about is your clay story, how you came into clay and what your experience is and where you think you're going with that. Now, both, I guess, taking that experience of Queer Cat in and just in general. Oh, I love that. So when I was younger, early, late teens, all I knew in life was that I loved creating and I wanted to be an artist. I knew that my path was leading me to go to college. I didn't really know where and the only true passion I had in life was photography. But I also found so much 
happiness in my art classes and just creative classes in general. So when I ended up deciding on going to University of Oregon, I took all of the art classes that I could, painting, drawing. I took some sculptural wood classes and really I was just trying to find a medium that really spoke to me and my artistic practice and what I wanted to be able to create and share with others. And through that, I really just honed in even deeper and stronger on photography. But I knew that there was a part of me that wanted more hands-on creativity. So once I graduated college and I got my degree in, in journalism and I minored in studio art, I still hadn't found the more craft-based or hands-on-based artistic practice that I knew I was wanting. Anyway, the pandemic started. So 2020, 2021, the pandemic started and Ty, my partner, had bought a wheel off of Facebook Marketplace and I had a full-time work-from-home job and I really didn't have time for playing with clay. But we had clay all over the house and we had the tools and I was being surrounded by creativity. And every time that Ty was throwing a pot, he said, pick up a ball of clay and make something. So I was really given the encouragement to just play. And it was the first time in my life that I wasn't super career oriented and motivated to create for monetary and life purposes. This was me just playing. And we had all the time in the world when we were under lockdown. So that's how I started. And for a while, even now, like earlier today in this interview, I'm saying, oh, I'm new to clay. But I don't know. I feel like I had it in me. So it doesn't feel new and it feels new at the same time. I don't know if that you know, resonates with anyone. But the moment where I decided that I was going to get into it was at East Creek, actually. It was Ty's birthday and I was scouring the internet for something fun and creative, experiential to do in Oregon. And we found a Raku workshop. We binged all of Pottery Throwdown. And so everything that I knew from pottery was from Pottery Throwdown. And I didn't really have any other experience with it. When we got to East Creek and it was just the most down-to-earth and warm, welcoming, fun, creative place that was surrounded by the most beautiful nature and wonderful people. We were hooked and we went back for a seven-day sculptural workshop and then we went back for the Onagama firing. And each time that we went to East Creek was so vastly different that I knew that whatever energy we put into this new thing that we had going on, we could take out of it whatever we put in. And once you go to East Creek, it's really hard to not go back. It's a drug, really. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> and the encouragement and the support that you get from these incredible, inspiring, surrounding artists. I've never experienced anything like that. I've taken a ton of classes in, in a variety of schools and educational programs, but this was up to me. What I was able to, whatever you're able to put in. What am I trying to say? Are you talking about, is it a reciprocal relationship? Yeah, yeah. It's just magic. There's magic behind East Creek that I have a hard time explaining, but we can, you know, make a podcast about it. <laughs> <laughs> it's that certain je ne sais quoi. <laughs> exactly. There is something pretty special about East Creek and the synergy of the place and the, I guess, the overall attitude and the welcoming and the, I don't I throw around the word gestalt a lot and I probably shouldn't, but there is something holistic about the whole place and the people there and what it's there for and what the people are there for and why we gather there. It's just, it's a special place. And Queer Cat took that to a new extreme, like a new level of just... Wow. 
So one other component, because you, you didn't just document the event with photography, you also conducted a lot of interviews with participants. What led to putting that as part of the programming and what was that like? Right. So part of my journey, it is a, a journey of self-discovery and a journey of self-practice, but I do a lot of it to my partner, Ty, and he is just an incredible potter, but other than that, he is an incredible filmmaker. We actually met seven years ago when we both were assigned to be a part of this documentary project. It was the OPB Ken Burns Vietnam War documentary. And so both of us went to Vietnam and we interviewed just a wide variety of people from activists to veterans to people that actively participated in the community. Anyway, documentary filmmaking has made itself a part of my life. And I know that my favorite form of storytelling is photojournalism, but there's something so powerful and impactful about video and about filmmaking in that is the interview where with photography you can interview someone and write their story and tell their story via document or audio but video you can see the person's reactions you can almost see part of their heart and soul on their face while they're telling their story and so being able to interview people that were participating in Queer Cat while I'm simultaneously participating in Queer Cat, that was something that was extremely special and I'm so glad that we did that. There is a lot that goes into creating a film and part of that is the editing process, which we all know is taking a very long time, but we mm -hmm. it is going to be absolutely incredible once we get there and once we're able to share the stories that I was able to be a part of one-on-one -on -one or two-on-one -on -one with Ty filming and me interviewing. And it really brought me closer to these people. I feel like that element of I feel bonded with many of the people that I interviewed because I was able to, you know, listen to their stories and it felt like they were just talking to me, but I'm mm -hmm. able to share it with everyone, which is really, really cool. Uh, well, I'm curious if there were any specific standout moments from those interviews, oh, yeah. like things you weren't expecting or things that you, you held on to afterwards. Absolutely. I think each and every one had a moment of that for me. I mean, the first interview we did was Benjamin, and he was telling his story about how he grew up in a religious community and coming out as a gay man in that community gave him both strength and a hardship that he was able to harness the energy of and share that with his medium and his artistic practice. It inspired me to put my stories into my pieces. The next interview we did was with Miranda. Miranda Jesse is their Instagram name. I'm not sure. Miranda Carson, I think. I interviewed two Mirandas, so that was... Yeah, there are, there's, a, there's a couple of Mirandas out at, at East Creek, for sure. Dark, curly-ish hair. Yeah, that's Miranda Carson. Miranda Carson, yeah. I loved, absolutely loved her story, because she's telling me about how she grew up... Her mom was a belly dancer, and she grew up surrounded by artistic practice of movement and just joy and creativity, and they were also, they, Miranda's pronouns are she, they. And Miranda was talking about how, what that means to her. And with her sharing her story, I was able to look within myself and understand those feelings that I've always had and normalize this element of queerness and that I am feminine presenting, but you know, I have, as she called it, her boy days. And that's something that I, I keep with me when I'm putting my clothes on in the morning. I'm like, you know, I'm having a boy day today. And she gave me the confidence to consider my pronouns. I can go on. I, I can talk about Twig's interview. I can talk about Alex's interview, talking about <laughs> what accessibility means, access and accessibility. And Alex really brought up some very important notes that we had discussed at our roundtable discussion and furthered 
it where Queer Cat is an amazing community of queer artists. How can we make this accessible and continue to give access to people of all races and gender and being able to uplift people in typically marginalized communities and lift them up and put them in leadership roles and even just give them the the access, the tools, the knowledge, the support to feel like themselves enough to participate in something as grandiose as Queer Cat. Because it's not just you're surrounded by people for more than 24 hours. You know, it's a whole weekend, you come back. That's a lot of energy, emotional energy and social energy. And there's just too much to talk about with all of these and I'm so passionate about it. Welcome to the mid-roll. Not much to report here today, but I do want to offer a preemptive correction. In part two, we will go on a little side quest talking about Epsom salts as a suspension agent in glazes that have become deionized due to too much water. Yeah, we got sidetracked. Speaking on the fly in the special way that always gets me in trouble, you will hear me say that Epsom salts are magnesium, and that isn't quite accurate. They are magnesium sulfate. And when I describe the odd structural quality of the molecule, I am referring specifically to the magnesium sulfate molecule and not magnesium alone, which is an atom. I hope that clears up any confusion. I also want to take a nerdy lab tech moment here to offer a pro tip with how to use Epsom salts, because in my decade plus tenure as a tech, I've run across a lot of misconceptions on how they actually work. First, a spoonful of Epsom salts is plenty to fix an entire 5-gallon bucket or even a 10-gallon bucket. Use too much and you'll overflux the glaze. Second, and unfortunately, you can't just add Epsom salts to a settled-out bucket and mix. This isn't quite that easy of a fix. If you just add and mix, the rock-hard sediment will remain rock-hard and you'll break the bucket long before anything suspends. What you need to do is dissolve the Epsom salts in warm water and pour it in a clean bucket. Then pour the liquid portion of the settled glaze into the Epsom salt water and stir with a drill. The mixture will get very thick, and that's okay. Now the gritty part. Take a sharp knife you don't care about and start cutting out chunks of the settled layers, crumbling them and adding them to the Epsom salt mix, pausing to run the drill every few minutes. Or better yet, have a partner in crime run the drill slowly for you while you cut and crumble to make the whole process go faster. The lower you go into the sediment layers, the harder it gets to pry up, but it's worth it. When you've mixed in the last of the settled glaze, you might need to add some water as the Epsom salts really do make it thick and pasty. When you're done, sieve everything back into the original bucket and enjoy your renewed and functional glaze. And that's my professional two cents on reconstituting a deionized glaze, which was never intended to be a subject matter in this episode, but there you go. I hope that helps. All right, let's get back to it. Tommy, <laughs> who are you? Where did you come from? <laughs> yeah, so my name's Tommy. In respect to Queer Cat, I found out about it, I think, through Instagram. I was following Twig because I took a class with Twig back in 2021. And obviously, Twig is very charming. So I followed him <laughs> on Instagram. Stop. You just stop. <laughs> I moved on to a different studio after that that was closer to my place. But there's a connection on Instagram, obviously, being queer artists and queer ceramicists. I had just only been doing ceramics as a hobby, as after work, or just as like a creative outlet. By training, I'm a, a software engineer. So I work in more like a rigid, more objective field. And seeing Queer Cat, I was interested. I was on the wait list, actually. And luckily, I got my spot as the date got closer. I had no expectations going into it because I had no idea 
what, what, what firing entailed and what even it was. And to be honest, I actually thought it was a two-day thing until the night before. I was like, okay, I should probably look at the programming. And I'm like, oh, it's actually five days. <laughs> and I was like, okay, I guess this is a surprise. And it was... <laughs> quite a delightful surprise because that's not the experience I had was not what I was expecting going into it I left Queer Cat with so much more than I could have even imagined having ceramics be such a solo activity for so long because when you're like a student you go into the studio you do your thing and then you kind of leave you have this black box of a kiln like you give to the tech or put it on the shelf actually and it just comes out and you're like oh okay that worked so you have no real sense of ceramics as a community and how it actually takes such a big team to operate and fully assemble a final product so being at the queer cat chicken cat firing i got to learn so much and it was a hundred percent due to the environment that the program that Twig and Alex formatted and then the safe space that they created because having, I'm actually doing the Anagama firing at East Creek right now, <laughs> going back and forth this week. And I 100% know that I would have been way too intimidated to be fully involved if I hadn't done Queer Cat before and had gotten to know people like, be like, oh, hi, Twig, Twig's there. And then Aubrey's there. And you just feel a lot more safe to ask questions and get really involved and ask to be involved. Whereas if I were just coming back, I had zero relations with anyone. You just are like, oh, am I allowed to? What am I supposed to do? I don't even know what wadding is. Like, you know, all these things. And you just get so intimidated that you just probably do like drop your stuff and leave because I'm like, oh, I'm not a real ceramicist. I'm like doing it as a hobby. I just leave. It doesn't seem like they need me or anything like something like that. Right. But when I got to QueerCat, it was immediately, oh, this is a learning firing. We want to get community involved. There are no stupid questions. And it was actively asking if people wanted to be involved, which seems so easy, <laughs> but it takes it so far for people who are just innately more shy or maybe marginalized. So they have a history of where they feel very othered and intimidated to be involved. So I think that seemingly little aspect takes the event so far. And it's an understatement to say that my experience in Cricket really catapulted my current pivot. So I'm currently pivoting from my current job to try ceramics as a full-time job. And it's literally in progress right now as I speak. Yeah. I'm still doing part-time my current job, but slowly transitioning. Through Cricket, I actually met Lilith where I, I'm currently working once a week as a studio assistant. And she has been such a big mentor to me. And without Kirk, I would never even encountered her. I've just only seen her on Instagram. So yeah, that's my story up till now. It's quite nerve wracking and, and surreal to even admit to myself that this is a pivot I am taking. But it is really due to seeing the, the event itself, but also seeing people who are so passionate and also queer and knowing that there is a real future that is possible for me. Tommy, can I ask how old you are? I'm 33. 33. So, I mean, this is a big life pivot when you were probably on a very specific trajectory before. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm pretty late to the game, but I'm also okay with that. It's never too late. I know that you have another opportunity coming up next year as well that I wonder if you want to share. Yeah, so I was in Korea for two months in September and August, and I was born in Korea, I'm, I'm Korean, and I was there to visit family, but also an ulterior motive was, well, not so ulterior, was to find a mentor, because I had this idea and dream for about a year now, where I wanted to move to Korea to learn ceramics in the, the traditional sense. Korea has such a deep and long history of ceramics that just predates other countries and especially America. And all I've learned in America is this American style, which works and is great. But being Korean myself, I'm, I've always wondered how would it have been if I lived in Korea or grew up in Korea and got to learn the traditional way. So I spent the month scouring Korea, going to museums, ceramic museums and traveling around Korea and then asking <laughs> for mentorships for next year. 
I got a lot of no's, but there was one <laughs> encounter that was quite, it almost all a little destined. I won't go into the story too much, but basically I met this Ongi master who agreed to do an apprenticeship with me. And I have my tickets ready. I'm flying over to Korea in the end of February. And he promised that it would be hard, but I'm really excited to learn the techniques and fully be engrossed in ceramics literally like all day, every day. It's going to be immersive. <laughs> yeah, very, very immersive. Because even now, at most, I only have access to the studio maybe three or four times a week and like in three hour chunks. So it's not the most immersive, but I think it's just kind of like a dipping my toes in, getting like half time in ceramics. And then when it comes February, March, I'll be a little bit more ready <laughs> to do it. So I'm really excited about that. How long are you staying there? So it's tentative, but he said at least a year or two. So I'll be going. I have no real limits, to be honest. I'm kind of letting it take me where it takes me. And it's such a frightening, but also frightening in a good way, because frightening sounds negative, but it's it's exciting. It's like if it's like sudden rush of adrenaline, I feel, even though I'm 33, I feel like I'm 21 or 18 again, have going on a new adventure and not knowing what's ahead of me is also quite exciting for lack of a better word. Yeah. Well, that is exciting, Tommy. And well done you for like just taking that initiative and, and just finding your path that way. I mean, that is exciting. That's incredible. Thank you. you know, huge congratulations. That's just awesome. You know, I'm, I've been like crying <laughs> this whole episode, but I'm just really so happy for you. I mean, clay all day, you know. <laughs> I just really admire your persistence with doing this. I don't know. I just feel very similarly about Clay that once I felt that connection, it was like, how can I make this happen? And so seeing you do all these things and like even going to Korea, getting the whole list of no's and still being like, I can't leave here until I get a yes. I just think it's so awesome. You're living my dream right now. <laughs> Thank you so much. Well, what we need to do is check in in a year and be like, okay, how's it going? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, we'll need like monthly vlog updates. <laughs> in grad school, I went to Korea for a short time. And, you know, one of the things, because you're talking about learning the traditional making processes. And I think one of the really interesting things about Korea is the blend of how they've held on to their traditions, but they've also innovated. There is nothing like contemporary Korean ceramics either. It's a very, I don't know, it was a very unique place to be because you were surrounded by both this solid embedded tradition that they're still maintaining, but they're not mired in that tradition, I guess. They're just celebrating that, but then they're also, there's so much cool contemporary stuff going on in Korean ceramics as well that it's a mind-boggling place to be just from a ceramical standpoint. Was the biennial going on while you were there by any chance? Which biennial? Well, there's the big Korean biennial that happens every two years, and it's like Disneyland for ceramics. It's insane. Oh, no. There wasn't a ceramics biennial when I was there. There was an art. It was called Freeze, but that was like an art art thing, like just purely art. But no, there was, if, if there was, I definitely missed it. <laughs> okay. Well, yeah. I mean, when we went, it was going on and it was in the May, June time of year. But if that happens to be going on while you're there, it will knock your socks off. It's so, it's amazing. Like it's in three different cities and it just, amazing. it's like ceramics just takes over these cities and it's for people from all over the world have sent in their work for all these juried shows, but it's overwhelming. You wish ceramics was treated this way in America. Yeah, it is. I did get a little bit snippet of that because my teacher is in Ichan, which is, is very rural. It's two and a half hours away. And it, they call it a ceramic village because literally the biggest ceramic population in Korea. And they have a yearly ceramic festival and everything like that. So I'm excited to be involved in that soon, hopefully. And the idea of a ceramic village is kind of mind-boggling, I guess, coming from America because we're just we just do it in pockets. And here it's the country's center where every ceramist goes there. And it's quite fascinating. Also, like you said, there is a long, long history of actual like generational ceramic studios and companies where 
the children take over and it's like six, seven generations of Ongi masters. And wow, there's so much inherited knowledge if you just do it since you're like five years old. That is just wild to me. And to be able to be part of that soon and part of that Korean heritage that I always longed for, I'm really excited. But yeah, check in with me a year later. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I would. I want to hear the whole follow up of this whole thing. And I'm, I'm assuming, like you are. Well, no, I am assuming this. It is a generational, a family generational Ongi studio that you're joining. I do not think so. He definitely learned from a master, and he's a master himself. And he makes his own, obviously, craft, but he also does a lot of teaching. And I think that was why it was such a good fit, because he was looking for someone who was fluent in both Korean and English, because a lot of his students that come for this experience of Ongi, there's a lot of international people who come to learn. And it's a great asset to have someone who can translate and also be involved and also just personally so passionate about learning. And I think it's, I don't know, maybe it's definitely the engineer inside of me, which this goes into why I love ceramics so much. The engineer inside of me loves building like hard skills and learning techniques and perfecting them. And ceramics is this really good blend of technique and craft and also art and creativity, which really joins my engineering half with this desire to have some creativity, which had been lacking for so long in my 10 years of being an engineer, where I, you're like working for a company and, you know, <laughs> there isn't much leeway. <laughs> so I'm also excited on that note to see in the future years from now when I've become more confident in my skills as a ceramicist, how I can marry my hard skills as an engineer with my ceramics, because obviously tech isn't going anywhere. <laughs> I love that ceramics is a blend of craft and art because I love making stuff with my hands. I love seeing things be used by other people. That gives me tremendous amount of joy. And the fact that I can be creative, but also create something functional, that's going to be a really big motivation for me to continue to do ceramics. What about wood firing in particular, just from an engineer's I mean, speaking of hard skills, yeah, you're relatively new to ceramics at large, but then you've also taken on like learning how to wood fire at the same time. And now you've got two very different types of kilns that you've learned on so far. What's your take on how that factors into everything? I am really fascinated by the idea of a wood fire kiln because, well, one, it's such an ancient technology. <laughs> when I was in Korea, actually, I was going to these ceramic museums and touring these ancient kilns that they excavated and stuff, and they're humongous. And to know that these people, these communities work these kilns before the idea of even measuring temperature, I'm just like mind boggled by the way how they knew when to like finish. <laughs> there's so much more to it than just science, I think. I mean, nowadays, I think there's so much scientific knowledge that you can apply to kiln and firing, which I really am interested in getting into because my major in college was actually chemical engineering. So I was a chemical engineer for a year, which is working with reactors and actual like chemical processes, which is not that different. <laughs> you put something in and put something different out. There's a chemical reaction, bring it out. And it's been a long time since I've actually like practiced it. But there was a point where I was so interested enough to actually spend four years of school. <laughs> so it's a fascinating full circle coming back to ceramics and being like, oh, there's actually a lot of chemical engineering applications in ceramics. And there's a lot of scientific side. And this is where my studio time with Lilith has been really nice because we've been doing a lot of glaze testing and like formulating glazes and like figuring out which components to use. And I think that part I didn't realize was going to be part of a ceramics wheelhouse. And I'm really excited about that to bring back my previous knowledge of chemical engineering into my craft. And the idea of developing my own glaze is so exciting. It makes me really giddy. You're in hog heaven, aren't you? <laughs> it's just awesome. I've always thought too that ceramics is such a blend of art, craft, and science. The chemistry and the engineering, but I also think about even just throwing on the wheel is physics. You can come at it from all kinds of perspectives, but I was going to ask you if you had dipped your toes into glaze formulation yet, because obviously it sounds like your world's colliding. <laughs> Are you enjoying it so far? Oh, 100%. I've been crushing a lot of rocks. <laughs> <laughs> That'll happen. 
happen. Yeah, a lot of we we <laughs> we did the basalt glaze test, and then we just ground up a lot of basalt, and then made like ten recipes to figure out what glaze formulation would be best, and then. We also did an ash one where Josh and I created our own ash and then did some ash glaze testing. I haven't seen it. It was just in the kiln before we went to the Anagama. So I'm excited to see the results next week. But yeah, I'm still very new. So it's also trying to absorb all this information of like, why are there recipes like this? And why does adding, I don't know, for example, like even just like adding salt makes the glaze thicker. And like, that's so like, Salt, really? Like, that's so crazy. Like, I want to know why. Are you talking about Epsom salts in particular? Yeah, Epsom salts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh, it's because it's, it's magnesium. Magnesium's a really interesting, if you look at the structure of it, it's a suspension agent. So it makes everything suspend the same distance apart. Flocculent. Yes. And it's, it's a very fluffy material. I was going to say, does it have to do with ions? At all? Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, and it's also, if you look at the structure, it's wild in the Epsom salt makeup because it's this, I don't know, it's just so even. Usually molecule change you get, it's a chain. And magnesium is a lot more nucleic looking with offshoots instead. Like it's, anyway, that's why that does that. <laughs> Thank you. No, I have no chemical engineering knowledge. I just remember my boyfriend and I were curious about that and looked it up and he was like, wow, that is the strangest looking molecule I've ever seen. <laughs> Hi, Aubrey. Hi, everyone. I'm sorry. It's been a very intense week here at uh, East Creek, and Juniper is with me. That's okay. It's a lot going on. Yeah. I think it was just too many things on the plate, so thank y'all. That's okay. We let Shai talk about their photography career and how that integrated into the Queer Cat and what a magical experience that was to combine career and passion into one, and also that the lasting impacts the interviews had. And Tommy has just been telling us about his total life trajectory about face. Yeah. <laughs> Catalyzed by the queer cat. He's going to Korea next year to learn from an Ongi master. Cool. <laughs> well, that's awesome. I've been thinking about the questions that Shai asked in the interviews. And I don't know, tell me if you were interviewed at Queer Cat, they were really good questions, and I just don't remember them all, and I'm wondering if you have any off the top of your head? Because I feel like there were some about the intersection of identity and work, and I don't know, that's that's something that I want to like know more about, this idea of the intersection of identity, art, career. I have a little anecdote. Do the anecdote. So this might be too random, and I'll try to condense my thoughts, but... One thing that was pretty crazy for me about Queer Cat is when we first got there, we had our dogs with us and Ty, my partner's parents, actually came and stopped by to pick up the dogs. And Ty's dad was a potter and we'd been talking about East Creek all the time. So we were excited for them to see the place and to meet everyone. And we didn't really give them the lowdown on what the the whole weekend was about. And so my soon-to-be in-laws came to Queer Cat, and it opened a whole conversation about queerness to our entire family. They had conversations within themselves and their family unit that brought them closer together, and they told me about conversations they had with other family members, their siblings, who may have never had a conversation about queerness, about pronouns, about identity like that. And that to me was really incredible to hear about how basically me just welcoming some people into this small moment of this little bubble of my life and how much of an impact it had on the greater society. And that I also have taken small elements of that idea to my personal life, just talking about using queer and inclusive language in my social life, in my business, in my wedding invitations. And Queer Cat really, you know, taught us that we can talk about it and talking about it makes other people talk about it. And when other people talk about it, it creates a world of understanding and knowledge and further conversation. And that's pretty awesome. 
That's powerful. Yeah, it was cool. I have something to contribute actually about that that intersection. It's something that I've not been concerned about, but something that I've ruminated on is the idea of when I go to Korea. This might be a little bit of a negative discussion, but Korea is very conservative and my teacher knows nothing about my personal life. And I don't know what it's going to be like, but I have this inkling that I might need to tone down or figure out how to present myself in a way that feels a little bit more safe, for lack of a better word. I know that Korea is nowhere in the way of just like, I won't be in any like physical danger if I were to be more expressive about my homosexuality. But we talked a little bit about at for Cat how the wood firing scene is in America is also straight male white dominated in a sense. And in Korea, the patriarchy is also very real. So it's very much dominated by straight men, Korean men, <laughs> obviously, <laughs> in that world. And even being there, when I got to meet my teacher for the first time, it was a table of three older straight men with me. And we're just like discussing ceramics and whatever plans and things like come up, right? And they're like, oh, are you married? Do you have a wife? All these like, questions come up. And obviously I didn't say I was gay, but I'm like, how do I navigate this in the sense? Because at the end of the day, the people with the knowledge I want to get are all, they kind of have the same background. I and mean, I can't really pick and choose <laughs> who I want to learn from, especially if I want to learn a very specific technique and skill. So I, there's no real answer. It's like a topic of concern for me. I'm fortunate enough to be able to pass as a straight person if I needed to. But on the other hand, I'm like, I've been out for over a decade. And the idea of censoring my language and the things I say is such a antithesis of what I've been actually like working towards to be so confident and so out and proud of myself of who I am. So I don't know, I, I think I'll have to figure it out as I go while I'm there, because it's not something that I can predict. But yeah, it, it is such an odd concept to know that some of these skills are so locked away in such in very specific spaces and to have access to certain skills and knowledge you have to look and be a certain way which on the other hand is exciting for me to if i when i finish this apprenticeship and come back as someone who has skilled in ongi i can provide access to future people who are queer and who might not be able to be safe just because they can't pass quote unquote something that twig and i talked about a little bit when i saw him when i after korea is being able to provide access to other folks who might not have it as readily makes me really happy <laughs> to even think about that. But yeah. Is that what your focal point, because I mean, that's hard. It's hard to have been out and comfortable being out for so long and then feel like you have to pull back in and not show a very important part of yourself to people. Yeah. Is that idea of being something of a bridge with this knowledge, is that a focal point that you're holding on to? Like it's going to be worth it because of this? Yeah. So initially it, I hadn't even thought about that. <laughs> I was just scatterbrained, like, I want to learn this. But as I became more and more real, those thoughts came out. And I think on the surface level, I was like, F it. I just should be as out and proud as I am here. But then I got to thinking, is it better to grin and bear it and gain this knowledge as I can and become a bridge for other folks? Is another idea that I've been thinking about and has, like you said, kind of been a motivation for me. Because at the end of the day, that's the skill I want, right? And in some ways, it's going to be hard. And maybe one of those aspects is being a little bit more reserved because it's not that I'm like denying or lying to myself. It's just I'm being a little bit more careful. And that's something that is out of my control as it is a different country with different set of rules and different set of cultures and norms. So yeah, in a way it is. To me, it sounds like you're so possessed by the desire to learn. You're, whatever it takes, you're going to make it happen for yourself. And I really admire that. It also, hearing you speak about wanting to bring the knowledge you learn to others and seeing, I know our listeners won't be able to see the smile that you had on your face when you said the joy it brought you, but I could try to communicate that I just saw you light up in that moment. And I think that's just so powerful. Nothing's going to stop you now. And the other thing I'll say about that, too, is personally, just moving from Oregon to Kentucky 
and having to reestablish myself in the community has been difficult. And I'm going to have to be doing the same thing too in the wood fire community, just to a sense, because I'm so possessed by my desire to be a part of this thing that I don't care what nothing's going to stand in my way. Damn right. (laughs) You bringing this up, Tommy, it really makes me think about how coming out is both a lifelong thing and a choice, and that it might not always be the best choice in the moment. And that unfortunately, it is something that we at times have to be judicious about. And it is really hard, especially if you've already been out, you're comfortable living your best life. And then to, in a way, deny yourself of that to conform. I know it can take a toll. Even if you know who you are, it's hard to keep up appearances in that way. And I just want to emphasize that you have your community here in Oregon. I know that you have your queer community in Korea. So make sure that you're like leaning on these people for support because we're here for you. We know who you are and we're here to support you through this. You know, what strikes me about this is we were just talking about the collision of life, culture, passion, lifestyles. Everybody at Queer Cat was out and proud and it was such a huge part of the community there, but it was also absolutely rooted in ceramics and the knowledge and, you know, firing the kiln. There was this total fusion of all these aspects of life. And now what you're talking about doing is setting some of that aside so that you can, I mean, you're basically having to separate it now. You're you're talking about going and learning the skill and there's a price for learning that skill. And that is setting aside this huge part of yourself for the time being, you know, while you're there in, in the company that you're in, not addressing that essentially. And it's this division of those things for a purpose, but it's striking to me the opposite of the feel of Queer Cat, which was an absolute combination of all of those things. Nothing was left out of Queer Cat about anybody. Everybody could bring anything they wanted to that table, and now you're having to pick and choose the battle, I guess, that you're fighting, and you're focusing on learning from this person everything that he can teach you, but also hiding something from him because you're not sure if he can deal with it. Yeah, in this dream scenario, in the future would be something of like maybe after some a lot of time that I can also maybe change people's minds back in Korea. I think that would be such a I don't know. I don't know if it's realistic, but <laughs> it would be a, such a heartwarming experience and such a cherry on top of whatever experience and knowledge I get is because what Shai was saying is that it is the exposure and just physically seeing people who are queer that really helps other people understand we're just people <laughs> right, <yeah. laughs> who have the same desires and passions and curiosity. And it, it's not really relevant to the craft, unless obviously you want it to be. So I, I hope that if I do end up being more out in my time, in my, in my apprenticeship in Korea, that I can also be an example of just like a data point in their lives. Of I'm sure a lot of these people in, in the rural countryside of Korea have never met a gay person. So it's like, how could I also change their perspective? Honestly, I doubt that's true. I'm sure they, that they know of. <laughs> uh, they definitely unintentionally, unknowingly have met lots of right. queer people because they're everywhere. But yeah, it, it, it's that would be such a dream. I have no expectations of that. I will feel it out. But that would be such a heartwarming experience to have, kind of experiencing what Shai experienced with this blooming snowball effect of their family's community. I'm so excited for you, Tommy. Thank you. I can't wait to see your journey and, and follow it and know you behind it all. I have a question and I'm trying to find the most appropriate way to ask it. This is a question about it's a question about coming out in general, and I, I'm thinking back to the a major part of Harvey Milk's campaign back in the day was it makes a difference when it's somebody you know. And if that's something of a strategy that people have, know the people before they know that about you. If you know them well and you establish yourself and the relationship you have with them, and then you come out to them, I guess I'm asking experientially, if, uh, collectively, all of you, like if, if you've had that experience where it does help when they already know you a little. <laughs> My experience is actually totally opposite of that, but I think that being on the like trans spectrum is a lot different than sharing your sexuality. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I, I think that those two experiences are are very different. I guess because gender feels a lot more ingrained into like personality and the ways that people have you categorized socially and even in the language that we use. That has been my least favorite thing to do. Is it, it's so easy to introduce myself to new people to already have that expectation established. But to confront it in old relationships is really hard. Even this haunts me. Okay, my dentist. I haven't told my dentist about it. I have to see them twice a year. It still shocks me every time they leave me a voicemail. And I'm like, oh my God. But I just haven't done it because it just feels so hard. But I'm curious about others' experiences with that. I, okay, this is, it's different. But for the first three months of my relationship with my therapist, they called me Shay. Which is totally fine, but it's not my name. <laughs> and it took me three months to tell them that my name was Shy. For the listener's perspective, their name is spelled C-H-E-Y. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So it's okay. easily, and so many times people could just call me Shay and I'm like, oh yeah, like it, I, I don't even, I don't correct them. And just the idea of having to, quote, correct them. It's hard. And that's not even, that's just a name. Like, yeah, I honestly, I, my heart goes out to you, Twig, that <laughs> you got to tell your dentist, but you also don't have to get a new dentist. Literally, yeah. that's my strategy. Eventually, I'm just going to start seeing a new dentist and then I'll just figure it out from there. <laughs> well, it makes you feel any better, maybe, or not. <laughs> my dentist asked my pronouns and everything when I first got there, what my name was that I wanted to go by and everything, and then just ignored that entirely. Oh, that's really? so painful. That's another cool thing that can happen. Yeah, super yeah. cool. Oh, <laughs> They're like, we're in an inclusive office. No. Yeah, I have that issue currently with my physical therapist where... They use my name, but they just kind of forgot that I'm trans. And I'm just like, I don't understand what's going on here, but it's been too long. I've been seeing you for like six months now. And yeah, it's just one of those things. It's a lifelong thing. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to confront, especially feeling like, you know, I'm like, oh, I have like a really good practitioner client relationship with my physical therapist. I don't want to make it weird by I don't know, bringing up this other thing. And that's just like one little instance of that. But it happens all the time where, I don't know, some box doesn't get checked. People don't look at the right tab or they just don't pay attention to it. And then that ends up following you everywhere. Yeah. No, no, I'm just going to say you get desensitized. At least I do. And it doesn't make it easier. Right. I don't know if I'm totally desensitized to it or when I feel desensitized, I'm still just, it's like that switch turns on of like, I'm acting now. I have a similar, I guess you could call it privilege of, I don't know if it's really a privilege, but I get treated as a woman in a lot of the new spaces that I go into. And sometimes I use that to my advantage in certain ways. Sometimes people are a lot nicer to women and I try to play that up, I guess. I don't remember where I was going with this. No, it's totally relatable. No, it's pretty relatable. And it's your story. I have the same issue on the autism front. There are times when I go into a situation, I'm like acting. <laughs> like I'm just going to pretend to be normal. Yeah. To function in a space. And sometimes it's rough, but it's also sometimes it's a little bit freeing because I'm aware of it. So I feel like I'm in control of that. Mm -hmm. But it's just, you know, every now and then you, I will go into a situation and be like, it's going to be easier to mask my way through this than to try to be authentic. Yeah, 100%. It's like, I don't want to have this confrontation right now. And if I'm not having the confrontation, I'm going to at least make the most of what this experience is going to be. I guess like try to get the most I can out of it. Sure. Yeah. I remembered what I was like, I don't know why I was leading up to this, but I think it was from what Alex said about letting it roll off your back. It has become more jarring to me recently to like be misgendered or have people use the wrong name for me. I had this like moment recently where I like referred to in my head, referred to myself in past tense as twig in a moment during my like childhood. And that for me was, whoa, I've like really internalized my current identity. And that makes it even more jarring when I'm misgendered or people use my birth name. I guess just a thing that happened to me that like both felt like a real success 
Success is a weird word to use for that, but just a moment of peace, understanding, personal integration, but then also being confronted that my experience is never going to be like integrated as a singular person and a singular identity because I exist both on paper and in the minds of many as uh, multiple different people. So just something that's been on my mind. Hearing this conversation and listening to each of the just stories that are relatable Um, watching you all shake your head with each share and knowing that a lot of other people experience these things, it really highlights the importance of creating spaces that normalize diversity and acceptance because then that becomes what is normal. I heard someone who was at Queer Cat at a show the other day. He was doing a show and he met a 12, 13-year-old person, a child of another potter. We were at the show together. And the first thing he said is, oh, hi, I'm Benjamin. I go by he, him. Do you have any preferred pronouns? Not weird, just part of the greeting. And I like learned from that of just like, oh, that's a really nice way that isn't uncomfortable and natural and just a way to be inclusive. And they said, oh, yeah, this is what I go by. And, And it was great. And thinking about Queer Cat and the idea of continuing on this, doing things like this or creating those types of spaces, this conversation acknowledges that the work is at the beginnings, all of this, if people are feeling this in their life. You know, Shai is saying that it, it does have an effect on people that aren't in the ceramic community. And that's really cool. And until it's an odd thing and not a thing where everyone's like, oh, yeah, that happens to me all the time. Like, we have to keep working on making things change because until it's like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that your your therapist isn't asking you these things and respecting your, like, that's crazy. You know, until that's the real reality of the world that we live in, which it is for some people who identify in other ways. You know, if like some person walked in, some guy and the, the therapist was calling them her and miss whatever it was, they would be like outraged. And I just think we're not in that world yet where that exists for everybody. Until that happens, we have to keep talking about it and keep coming together, building community of allies and acknowledging, hey, like, Tommy, we're here for you. Like, Twig is like, hey, you have your community. And like, the reason you have the community is because the community is coming together. That's the thing is we just have to build those places that are the foundations of support that can build the world that is going to be better and right. Sorry, I got like a little intense there, but I listened to all of this. I'm like, man, like, uh, mic drop. No, I, I love it. Well, where to next, y'all? Where to next? I feel like we've had a really great discussion. Is there anything else, like any lingering thoughts that anyone feels like they need to share or like an anecdote to come back to? Tommy, you're going to miss Queer Cat 2024. I am. I'm really sad about that. <laughs> we are too. That's okay. I will too. <laughs> I'm also really excited that it is happening again. When Twig was telling me about the planning for it and everything, I was like, oh my God, it's happening again. That's so, so rad. There's going to be such a continuation and an influx of a lot of other new people who are going to be inspired. And I can't even imagine how better it's going to be. There's going to be more exciting activities and programming. So I'm very, very, very honored and proud of the crew that started it (laughs) and also thank you for east creek to kind of provide a space because it's not something that we can just do in someone's backyard (laughs) 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 i mean i guess it is your backyard (laughs) (laughs) true the right (laughs) (laughs) that's so funny yeah i'm i'm so excited for queer cat 2024 and for continuing the conversation about queerness about identity and expression and about accessibility because there's a lot more to talk about what was that the program that kicked off the idea of queer cat it was good job do better or something like that oh that was the panel discussion we did at the at the conference at the woodfire conference i love that phrase good job do better oh 
do you know where that came from was when I was in when it, where I started grad school was at University of Dallas. I was there for a couple of years before I transferred to Utah and Jurgen Strunk was the printmaking professor there and he was this pint-sized super intimidating German man. He was a really kind man, but he was a very intense individual and that was the um running joke of how he managed critiques. He'd be like, "Good job." do better you know, <laughs> and send you on your way. That's where that came from. I love it. But, let's uh... carry it forward. <laughs> Great job, everyone. Let's do better. Let's keep going. Let's make this more accessible. Let's bring more communities into it and let's continue the conversation. Here, here. I feel like even just how it's touched all of our lives individually and affected all of our trajectories professionally, creatively, interpersonally, it's given a lot of people a lot to think about, which I think is very important. Well, Shai and Tommy, thank you again for joining us, and Twig again for joining us. I'm really excited you all could come on and, and tell your stories and how much bigger this event was than the event itself and the lasting impacts that it's really making on your lives and it's made on a lot of people's lives. It's really special for you all to come on and share that. So thank you. Thank you for creating this space. It's an honor. <laughs> Shucks. And that's our show for today. We want to extend an extra special thank you to Tommy, Shy, and Twig for coming on and sharing their stories. Stay tuned for more to come in 2024. In addition to the next iteration of Queer Cat, we're lining up a series of episodes in which we interview our mentors and forebears. Antra, Kareen, and I have two interviews with John Neely under our belts, set to come out next with more to follow. If you feel inclined, please leave us a rating and review wherever you go for your podcast, and we will heart your face. As always, if you have questions or feedback, please email us at heatworkpodcast at gmail.com. Thank you to Joshua Clausen for our music and to Julie at Elaborate Flight of Fancy for our logo. You can find them both on Facebook and Joshua is also on SoundCloud. And thank you all for listening. See you next time. Mm -hmm.